0: All right, well, evidently, there's a lot to be excited about. Glad you can get to know each other a little bit. We're going to go ahead and get started with our message. But don't be afraid to keep these conversations going after the service. Invite each other out for lunch. Go hang out together. And uh, let's just be a good community of faith together. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19 today, so we're back in the book of Acts. I really loved Nick sharing his story with us last week, and so thankful for the preaching team we have here. Nick did an awesome job, really gave us a very transparent uh, testimony and what God taught him uh, out of his life, and it's so great that he was able to do that because he gave that up during the Verse That Changed Everything series so that Dr. Isla could share with us, and then i was so glad he got a chance to actually share What he wanted to share there. And then uh, next week, make sure you're back here. Kyle Howard, our newest pastor, is going to be speaking to us. So be ready. you're all going to want to be here for that. Be be there next week. But today we're in Acts, and we're going to go through this series. We'll actually be through this. We're in Paul's third missionary journey right up until Easter. And that's going to be when we cap off the Acts series and we launch into some new stuff. We've got some exciting things planned for the rest of the year. We'll tell you more about that at the annual meeting. But today we're in Acts 19. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or... Tap there in your Bibles, whatever you do, and we're going to talk about an issue that I think is fairly relevant for us today, Um, and that is, it seems like you can't go very far without hearing about some group or another that's just outraged about something. Just outrage is everywhere these days. It's easy to get upset by a lot of different things. Uh, There's a group that's outraged that you still drive a gas-powered car, and there's another group that's outraged that uh, fossil fuels would ever be taken away. There's a group that's outraged because immigrants are crossing the border illegally. There's another group that's outraged that that would even be a problem. There's a group that's outraged because certain books are in a school library. There's another group that's outraged that you want to take those books out. It's just I could go on and on and on with the list of all the things you hear in the news and things in our national and local culture and society that just cause us to be outraged. And that's not necessarily a new thing. People have been outraged forever. But the speed at which an outreach movement can gain steam just seems like it's accelerated dramatically. And so what used to take months or weeks to form a a big group of people that's outraged about something now can happen in minutes or seconds as information is shared around. In fact, Governments have figured this out, and now one of the major things that governments will do is information espionage, where it's been fascinating to watch this. The last few years especially, it's really taken off. People will go and research, and you can trace back certain movements and phrases and ideologies that have taken root in the culture that that were actually launched now. Now, you know, once you trace it back, you can figure out by a foreign government with their thousands of agents online working to try to spread information that maybe was based on a completely fabricated story. But it ends up, you know, they give it some catchy phrase and it takes off and it makes it into the news. And then people actually start believing it and following it. So it's really interesting how outrage has become a a tool that's used as a matter of nations warring against nations and trying to stir up division in different countries. And I'm not saying our country doesn't do that too. I, I don't know if they do, but I'm sure all the countries are trying to do this to each other, right? But we live in what I would call an age of outrage because we're so quick to get upset about things and it can cause a tremendous amount of problems for us. We're going to find some guidance for this in a bit of an unlikely place. Nick mentioned last week that if he was doing Acts chapter 19, he'd have to deal with the riot in Ephesus, and what do you do? It's a challenging passage, but we do find some really helpful advice here for how to be wise in the age of outrage. So that's my sermon title for today, How to Be Wise in an Age of Outrage. And before we dive into the text, let's just bow our heads together, ask God for wisdom right now as we study his word. Father, thank you for what you have recorded for us in the book of Acts and what Luke wrote down so that we would know today, over 2,000 years later, how some of these events unfolded and how you worked in the middle of them. And and the passage that we'll see today is, is a really interesting one, but I think it does give us some helpful lessons for how we can be wise. So God, we pray for your discernment right now. Help us to see ourselves in some of the characters in this story. Help us to understand how they relate to us and we relate to them and how we can live a life that glorifies and honors you based on what you're gonna teach us through this text today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to start by reading the passage. And sometimes I like to just work through a passage together. Other times it's better if it's a narrative to just read the whole chunk of Scripture and then talk about it. So that's what we're going to do in Acts 19, starting in verse 23. We're going to go all the way to the end, verse 41. Let's read this story together. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. Now, the way is what they called Christianity at the time. They weren't really called Christians yet. And so they called themselves the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so they called themselves followers of the way. So some trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius. Remember that name, you're gonna need it later. He was a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, but Artemis is the correct name. He kept many craftsmen busy, so business was good, He called them together, all of his craftsmen, called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man, Paul, you can just hear the disgust in his voice, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. Imagine that. The gods we create with our hands, they're not real gods, huh? But that's what Paul has persuaded people. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but here's the real problem, throughout the entire province. And that was their target audience, all the people, the tourists that would come to this temple. He says, of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business, or the money, which is what he was really concerned about. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worship throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Asia, by the way, there is not what we know as the continent of Asia. It's a Roman province in, in Turkey and around Turkey, that kind of area. At this So at the mention of the prestige of Ephesus and the temple and the worship of Artemis, their anger boiled and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city, the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. So this was a dangerous situation. This was not just, oh, they're a little upset. They were willing to kill a guy. That was how bad this riot was. Inside, the people were all shouting some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak, but when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about 2 hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians and Alexander there, he's not really going to feature much in our message today, but he's he's a Jewish guy. He's Probably not a follower of the way the Jews put him forward, most likely to say, hey, by the way, you're, I represent the Jewish contingent here. We're not with those Christians either. So they were probably trying to separate themselves from the Christians. Uh, but they shouted, "Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. At last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said. Everyone knows. That Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. There was evidently a meteorite that had landed in Ephesus at one point in history, and it was thought that the, the image on it was an image of Artemis, the goddess, and so they built this whole cult around this idea. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session, and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I am afraid that we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them and they dispersed. I don't know if you've ever been in a riot situation before or a mob, but it's a scary thing. Many years ago, my wife and I were leading a team of teenagers in Paris, France. I know some of you have heard this story, but some of you haven't, so no spoilers. And while we were out on Bastille Day, big celebration in France, we're out at the Eiffel Tower, and there are 600,000 people gathered around this as there's an opera and an orchestra performance and a laser light show and a huge fireworks display. At the end of the fireworks display, late at night, it might have been midnight, um, I can't remember exactly when, but the transportation workers of the city had all timed a strike together to happen exactly as the fireworks ended so that all 600,000 people were stranded in the middle of Paris around, crammed in around the Eiffel Tower. And as you can imagine, they all took it really well. And so there was commotion and fighting and pushing and shoving as everyone's trying to rampage out to get home. Nobody drove there because you couldn't. There was nowhere to park. There's too many people. Everybody took public transportation to get in there, but no buses are running. The subway's not working. The trains are not working. There are no taxis because that's also part of this strike. There is no way to get out. And it is just a mad scramble mayhem all over the place. We had a a team of teenagers, and several of the girls had uh, issues while we were doing this with fainting and things like that, so we had to care for them. I was running from subway station to subway station to find some way to, to still get out of there, and I managed to talk with some locals and learn, thanks to them, that there were some officials in the subway group that weren't part of the union that was striking, so they were able to get one of the trains working and try to get people out of the city, which was really nice of them. I found out where that station was. We took our team there. We went down there. We got on the last train out of Paris that night. And then one of our girls, right as the train was about to take off, fainted and they kicked us off. The last train. So we were forced off the train, not everything was shutting down. The lights were turning off. And we just figured, well, we're just going to stay in this subway station. We're going to hunker down. A few of us are going to like be guards for everybody. We'll stay here during the night. And then some official came over and kicked us out and locked the doors. And so we were out on the street. No taxis, no buses, no trains, no businesses open anywhere. Long time ago, no cell phone connectivity, anything like that. We were stuck out on the streets. And as it turned out, there's There's a lot more to the story. I won't share all of the details with you, but we spent the night out there on the street with a few of us kind of keeping watch. And in the morning, eventually there were some buses that started working again, only as they came by, it was so crammed full of people that it looked like they were gonna fall out of the windows. And we waited bus after bus after bus until finally there was one that had enough room for us to cram in there. And we were able to head many miles south of there where we were staying and then you know sleep for the next several hours because we were exhausted. And we heard the next morning that, in some parts of the city, cars were flipped over and lit on fire. And there was all sorts of vandalism, people breaking into businesses, all the stuff you expect in a riot. It was crazy. It was not a fun experience to go through, but it still probably wasn't as crazy as what happened in Ephesus because this city was one of the biggest cities in the ancient world. Archaeologists think it was probably 200 to 250,000 people. And the text says that the whole city was in an uproar. And they wouldn't have had as many streets and as wide of streets. It would have been close quarters and proximity. And they actually grabbed Gaius and Articus, these two Christians, or Aristarchus rather, these two Christians who were with Paul's team, and they dragged them through the streets to the amphitheater, the biggest place where they could gather and yell and shout and do all this stuff. And I'll bet Gaius and Aristarchus probably feared for their lives. And they had reason to. I mean, it was seriously thought that Paul may die if he went in there because of this riot that was going on. Now, what's interesting about this story is that most of the time when we see conflict happen in these missionary journeys, there's a sermon involved somewhere. Most of the t- but you didn't hear that, did you? When we read the text, most of the time, there's some preaching about the gospel. There's something. And if Paul had been allowed to go into the amphitheater, we probably would have a sermon. We might not have a Paul anymore, but would have a sermon and some kind of lesson to take away from this story. But as it is, a tremendous amount of scripture is devoted to this story where there's really no obvious application here. Or, or principle given by the believers. In fact, the nicest thing that happens is the mayor ends up quieting it down, but that was just because he feared for his own life and his own job that the Roman authorities might come in and break everything up and he might lose it all. And so he puts an end to it out of self-preservation, But there's really no other sermon here. And so what we do is we look at the story. It's in there for a reason. It's included in scriptures for a reason. We say, what are some lessons we can learn from this? What do we observe about human behavior, about the way this sort of outraged mob develops about how things happen here that we can learn from and take some lessons from this? I wanna give you three things, three things to be wise in an age of outrage. And the first one is to watch out for someone or people who have something to gain from spreading outrage. Watch out for it. This doesn't usually present at first, but Demetrius is this guy who's a silversmith. He's a very successful and He's built up this big business out of manufacturing little shrines of the goddess Artemis, right? And selling them to the people. The temples in the ancient world, by the way, weren't just about religious worship. They were money-making enterprises. They were, they were designed to be tourist traps. That's really what they were. And tourists would come from all over the province. Hundreds of thousands of them would come through. And this was big business. We actually know a lot about the cult of Artemis because there's a ton of writing from this era that we can look at and see exactly how it functions. So the temple of Artemis we know was ultimately governed by the government. This was a state-run business that made money in addition to taxes for the, the state. That was a part of it. It was led by a group of men who oversaw the temple structure. Uh, Some people have claimed at times that Artemis was a, a female led cult, but that's actually not true. It had a female goddess that they worshiped, but it was entirely and exclusively run by men. We know that from the historical records of the time. There were women that served in the temple cult as interns. And so young women, their parents would pay the temple like a donation to have their daughter become an intern at the temple. And she would do things like, when you walk through a museum today, you see statues and things, and they're just, just a plain marble statue, right? But that's not what it looked like in the temples. They were painted, and they were decorated, and they had flowers, and they had clothes, on and they would change those. They wanted these to appear as interesting and lifelike as possible. It was the Disney world. It was the, you got to make this interesting, appealing, and, and for all the senses, you'd have incense going, you'd have food being presented for offerings to these idols. You, you wanted to make it worthwhile, a worthwhile experience for your tourists to come in and for them to come again and go, oh, let's see what it looks like now. And so you had this whole team of people whose job was to make this a very interesting experience. And that's what the temple was. It was a money-making operation. It was a business. In addition to the the worship that was happening there by all the tourists coming, it was also just a, a fascinating thing to see, an unbelievably large, beautiful building that they had there for the temple. It was a major operation. And so Demetrius and his crew are thinking, if people are following after Jesus, and if that is making them not follow Artemis and the cult of Artemis, then the more this spreads, the less people are gonna want our silver shrines hanging out in their house. The less they're gonna be buying those from us, the less money we're going to make. And that's what he cared about the most. So he calls the union together of all the tradesmen and he, he complains about what Paul is doing. He mentions him by name. And he says in verse 26 that it's not just Ephesus, it's the whole region. So their whole target audience for this operation is threatened by what Paul is doing and by people following Jesus. And what we see from Demetrius here is that his outrage has more to do with money than anything else. It's what does he have to gain about this? And that is why he is spreading this outrage. And that's often the case today as well. It's not immediately evident when people do this, but it should cause us to have caution. When someone is trying to work us up, when someone is complaining, I'm not talking about just in person, I'm talking about online, I'm talking about on TV, things that we watch. When someone is really trying to rile us up, in the back of our mind, we need to be cautious and think, is this like a Demetrius situation where this person has something to gain from working us up like this? It's just something we should keep in mind because that's what we see here. He's got ulterior motives for why he's trying to work up this group of people into a mob. We can't believe everything we hear at first. We shouldn't jump on board anytime someone is trying to get us worked up or get us outraged. Humans tend to be emotional people. And so if they can tug at our emotional heartstrings, they might get us to be involved in something before we really understand, hey, this person has something to personally gain from all of this. Let's take what they say with a grain of salt. That shouldn't surprise us. That's a normal part of the human condition, but that should give us caution, also known as discernment or wisdom. Take the time for wisdom before allowing someone to get you riled up into something. That's point number one. Watch out for people that have something to gain from spreading outrage. Point number two is watch out for idols that capture people's hearts. So Demetrius cared about the money. We know that that was the idol for him, but he also knew that wasn't what everyone cared about. And this group that he gathered together, They weren't all in it just for the money. Some people really cared about the prestige of their city, Ephesus. And I know you can relate to this. You probably have a a city or a university uh, that you are proud of, that you have allegiance to. You want to see them do well, you know, and so you you root for them. You care about their prestige. You care about how they do and their teams play, you know, in some kind of a big competition. And so you have sort of an allegiance there and you, and you have desires there. And so he's gonna to appeal to that as well. Some people care about the goddess Artemis. They care about the worship. They care about the temple. And so he's gonna say in verse 27, of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshiped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world will be robbed of her great prestige. So I don't think this was a major concern for Demetrius because he would have led with that, right? His major concern was the money thing, but he knows he's speaking to a a diverse audience with different desires. And he's trying to build a coalition. So he's appealing to different things that have captured their hearts, things that they are passionate about, things that are such a high priority for them that he knows, hey, if money isn't your thing, the temple maybe is. Ephesus is, the prestige is, Artemis is. This thing that's so much a part of our culture and our history and our heritage and our upbringing, that's being threatened. And I know that matters to you more than anything else. And so if I want to work you up into a a riotous mob, then I'm going to pull at those heartstrings because these things have captured your hearts. That's why it's so effective to approach it this way. They, they had these idols of different varieties that all revolved around Artemis in some way, but they were all different kinds of idols that were priorities for them, that they worshipped with their lives, whether it was the money that was made because of it or the temple worship itself, whatever it was. And that caused them to be worked up into a mob over this. In fact, uh, the text says that their anger boiled over because of this, because that's what pulled at their heart. So watch out for idols that capture your heart. Now, today, idols take different forms. My guess is that most of you don't have some kind of a silver shrine in your house right now that you're gonna go offer incense to later. If you do, I'd love to talk to you after the service. (laughs) But you have idols of other kinds. You have other things that are a priority for you, things that you feel like you can't live without, things that if you were to really do an honest assessment And just say, what are the things that I care about most in life? What are the things that I spend most of my time on, my money on? What are the things that take most of my energy, that get me worked up? Are they the things of God or are they the things of this world? Are they things, if you were to make a list, are there things that would come before God, before Jesus? before your relationship with him. You know, I had to do some self-assessment this week myself, getting ready for this message, which is the danger of preaching. is You always end up investing so much time into preparing the message that it hits you harder than anybody else. And I had to look at my own life and say, oh man, where, where are things for me that have, have come before my relationship with God? Where are things for me that have come before God's family that have come before the mission that God has for me? And I wanna give you a chance later in the service to have a couple of minutes, a few minutes to do that self-assessment as well. To think about what are those things on the priorities list that I have placed above God and so they're like idols for me. They've captured my heart. And those are things that the enemy can use to pull those strings and get you worked up into outrage. To get you worked up into the, the angry, frustrated mob that no longer is trusting in God for the outcome, but now is filled with anxiety and worry. Because in many cases, he they're pulling at the strings of an idol that's captured your heart. Watch out for idols that capture your heart. Number three, watch out for crowd thinking that sweeps people into outrage. My favorite verse in this entire passage is verse 32. Here's what Luke records for us. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, here's the best part. Most of them didn't even know why they were there. The majority of this riotous crowd didn't even know why we were shouting, what we were yelling about. Why are we so upset right now? I don't know, but I'm angry. And that's the way humans are, right? That's the way we are. We get worked up into a frenzy and crowd thinking steps in. And all of a sudden, we're swept along with some kind of an outrage when we don't even know the full extent. We don't know where it came from. We don't know who's behind this. We don't know who's paying for this. We don't know who stands something to gain from this. We don't know the facts behind everything, but we get swept along in outrage before you know it. And that is not what the Bible teaches followers of Jesus, followers of God, and how to be wise when it comes to outrage. Here's what the Bible has to say. We should all memorize these verses. They're so good. James 1:19. Understand this, my brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. It's not that all anger is bad. In fact, the Bible says in your anger, do not sin. So it's not saying that anger is always a sin. It's okay to be angry at sin. That, that's Okay. But human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires and we should be slow to get angry. A lot of times we're quick to get angry. We're very quick to see something we disagree with or hear about something we don't like or be told a frustrating story by someone and instead of stopping and thinking maybe there's another side of the story, maybe there's more to this that I don't understand, we are very quick to get angry and let it frustrate us and change our whole attitude because of that. Proverbs 18, 13 says, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Foolish. Proverbs 14, 15, only simpletons believe everything they're told. The prudent carefully consider their steps. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says, test everything, hold fast what is good. And in that context, he's talking, Paul, about doctrine. But the principle applies to everything. Test it. Don't just assume that it's true. Test it. And, and don't be quick to make a judgment about it. And don't be quick to get angry about it. Don't be quick to jump on board with it. Be quick to listen, but slow to jump on the bandwagon. Don't spout off until you learn all the facts. Don't believe everything you've been told. If you look at a lot of the problems that are happening in our world today, in our politics, in our communities, our schools, even our churches, a lot of it happens because we are quick to get angry. We don't listen enough, and we jump to conclusions And we get on board with the crowd, not realizing maybe there's more to this story. Biblical wisdom says, wait until you know the facts. Wait, test everything, only hold to what is good. Um, There's a uh, man who told me a year ago, an experience that he had with this, where he was... um, listening to certain kinds of news and really absorbed with a certain perspective of news and news sources. And this kind of goes along with the crowd and with the, the idol aspect of it. It became such a consuming thing for him that it changed his countenance, his attitude. His marriage started to suffer because of it. His relationship with his kids suffered because of it. His friendship suffered because of it. And he found himself to be just a bitter, frustrated, angry person all the time until one day he realized, oh wow, this is, absorption that I have, this obsession that I have with the news from this perspective is just, it's ruining my faith. It's, it's making me such a frustrated, bitter person all the time. And in some cases, what you have got to do with that is just take it down a notch, you know, and, and replace it with Jesus, you know, leave the, leave the idol alone or, or limit it. You know, if it's not a bad thing in its own right, you've just made it into an idol and pursue Jesus more. But in his case, he just said, I need to go cold turkey. I need to cut this out of my life. And he told me after a few months, he said, my, my whole attitude is completely transformed. Whereas I was always bitter and frustrated and angry at the world and worried about everything. My faith in God was weakened because of this obsession that I had. Now he said, I, just, I feel blessed. I feel encouraged. My marriage is doing better. My relationship with my kids has completely transformed because he stopped following the crowd that he was in and because he left the idol that he had made of that in his life. No, there's nothing wrong with being informed. There's nothing wrong with the news, but it it became an idol, an obsession for him. And it, it was radical for him to leave that and pursue Jesus more. And what a transformation that had for him because he stopped that crowd thinking he stopped pursuing that idol in his life. So three things, watch out for someone that has something to gain from spreading outrage. Watch out for idols that capture our hearts and that give strings that can be pulled to work us up into a a frenzy and and cost us some of that strong faith we wanna have in God and His, his work and his outcome for everything. And then watch out for crowd thinking that can work us up into outrage when we have no idea why we're even there sometimes or we certainly don't know all the facts yet. That's just some biblical wisdom for us. But I've given you three negatives Three things that are, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Let me give you a positive that I think is so much better than all of those. This is really the key. This is the secret sauce to make it all work. And this is my favorite aspect of this whole story. If there's one thing you leave here with, this is what I want you to leave here with. It is that following Jesus is a threat to idols. That's the key takeaway from this story. Following Jesus is a threat to idols. There's a reason why Demetrius was so concerned about the way. There's a reason why he was so concerned that people were following Jesus. It's not because, and you saw this with the mayor. What did the mayor say about the Christians? He said, they're not speaking against our goddess. They weren't. That wasn't their deal. Not that it would have been wrong for them to do so, but as far as he knew, that wasn't their big thing was, hey, you shouldn't be following the goddess Artemis. I mean, given the chance, I'm sure they would say that, but that wasn't the primary focus of their messaging. The message was follow Jesus. But see, by following Jesus, what does that mean? You're leaving the idols behind. You follow Jesus, you flee the idol and following Jesus is a threat to idols. And Demetrius saw this firsthand, hit his checkbook. And if we are gonna fight against idols in our lives, we have to recognize that it's, it's not just a battle against flesh and blood, it's also a battle against spiritual forces who would love for us to be captured by idols that we don't think are idols, would love for us to take things and elevate them in a priority above God. To think, I can't live without this. This is what matters to me. This is what I sacrifice for. This is what I spend my time on. This is what I spend my money on. This is really where my focus is. And I also go to church once a week or twice a month or whatever the frequency is, right? But that, this other thing is the priority for us. And so that's like the idol in our life. And our, the enemy forces are more than happy to let any of those things of our lives become that idol for us. But the antidote for that the way to resolve those idols, the way to get freedom from those strongholds in our lives isn't just to remove or take down a notch the idol or the stronghold. You have to replace it with something. It's about pursuing Jesus, not just fleeing the idol. I know a lot of people that have struggled with idols and strongholds in their lives and they try and they try and they try and they try really hard to stop, to to lower, to move away, to flee, It's not gonna work unless you're replacing it with pursuing something even more. Yes, watch out for the idol. Yes, watch out for the things that cause unnecessary outrage and and a lack of faith and trust in God. But the way to do that is to pursue Jesus. It's following Jesus that is a threat to idols and strongholds in your life. I wanna give you a chance to spend a little time in self-reflection. And today is a communion Sunday, so it's a perfect chance for us to do that. We're gonna have a few minutes while we distribute the elements. In fact, the servers can go ahead and join me up here as we get ready for this. And you're gonna have a few minutes to examine your heart, your life, which is what Paul tells us to do. He told the church in Corinth, hey, every time you gather to have communion, examine yourselves, examine your hearts to make sure that you don't partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily. And so we have a couple of minutes here while we distribute the elements where you can examine your heart and your life and pray, and ask God to examine you, and just do a really honest, genuine assessment. In my list of priorities in life, what's at the top, and how would you see that in my life? Is God a priority for me, or is there something else that has captured my heart? Is there something that's just always getting me anxious, and outraged, and worried, and angry, and bitter, and frustrated? Because if there is, there's a good chance that's like an idol for you. If the peace of God, if faith in God does not rule over that thing, then that thing is taking priority over God's work in your life. So take the step, make the commitment to leave that behind or knock it down on the list, but don't just end there. Make the commitment to follow and pursue Jesus because that's what's gonna make it stick. It's not just about your willpower. It's about God's power working in your life. That's what's gonna bring lasting change. That happens when you follow Jesus. We're gonna take communion now. And if you're new here, I want you to know that you are welcome to join us. If you're a follower of Jesus, please feel free to participate with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then just let the plate pass you by. This is just for people that have already committed their lives to Christ. When you receive the tray. There'll be a stack of two cups. The bottom cup has the bread. The top cup has the juice. And if you need a gluten-free wafer, they're available in the middle of the tray. As we pass these, take that time to do that assessment, spend some time in prayer, and then we'll come back together and we'll all take the elements together. It looks like everyone has been served as far as I can see. We're going to read from Mark 14 in just a minute here. And Part of this passage is Jesus breaking the bread and then blessing it. And so I want us to just pause for a minute and pray right now before we take this together and thank God for the bread of life that he has given us. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us on the cross, Lord. We remember this not just as some kind of a ritual or a tradition that we do, but as an ordinance that you instituted for us so that we would make sure we always remember the sacrifice that you made, God. We don't wanna take it for granted. We want the reality of the cross and your death on the cross to make a difference in how we live. It's not just fire insurance. It's a new way to live. It's a a new family, a new life that we have in you. And what we do right now is, is just a reminder of that, God, but it should also spark us to live differently this week. We thank you for your body, which was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us, God, everything that you did so that we could be in relationship with you and have the ability to have freedom from idols and strongholds in our lives, God. We pray that you do a powerful work for us this week and this year as we flee those and pursue you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So Mark chapter 14 says this, and we're going to be taking the bread together first. As they were eating... Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. Let's take the bread together. Then with a cup and he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Let's take the cup together. Hey, how many of you have made a resolution this year? Anybody got a New Year's resolution? I'm not gonna make you sure what it is, don't worry. Last night at dinner, my son asked Jenny and I if we had any New Year's resolutions. And we talked about it a little bit and I was curious why he... Asked why this was on his mind. He said, well, I have a New Year's resolution. My New Year's resolution is to help other people accomplish their New Year's resolutions. Wow, that's really interesting. It's like resolution inception. Very, very clever idea or or a cop-out on resolutions. I don't know. That's my resolution. You know, for some of us though, I think our resolution for 2024 needs to be a follow-up to this message of just simply this, flee the idol. Whatever God showed you, During prayer time just now, flee the idol, pursue Jesus more. How can you pursue Jesus more? Because that's how you're gonna find victory over the idol, whatever it is that captures your heart, that's a high priority for you, whatever that is, flee the idol, pursue Jesus more. We're gonna sing a song to close the service. And it's a really wonderful song. Here are some of the lyrics. The cross is all the confidence I need. Your love won't give up on me. You never make a promise you don't keep. Your love won't give up on me. I think if we're all being honest when it comes to resolutions, we're not always great at keeping them. But thankfully God is good at keeping his and he never makes a promise that he won't keep. So whatever you've made an idol of in your life, whatever that is, know that he has promised to never leave you, to never forsake you. He will always be there for you, waiting with open arms to welcome you back as you surrender your life to him. He won't give up on you. Even if your world is falling apart, he will not give up on you. So let me encourage you to stand with us now and let's sing.